in the back, so if you'd like to support the ministry, ask that you would do that, and uh, let's, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord of all, everything that we have is from you, 
may you take this uh, little bit that we give back and use it in your kingdom to grow it and to nourish it and to take it from this place outward. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise as we thank the Lord singing the doxology. of God, we do have a little bit of a special service today. We're doing some special things, so we'll accommodate the sermon to the text, and we'll start out in an unusual place that's rarely ever talked about, Acts chapter 1. Now, in Acts chapter 1, the beginning of the book of Acts, what we have is the second half of Luke. You notice how at the beginning Luke starts out the gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talking about the fact that he's going to do a serious accounting of the historical nature of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But a lot of people miss that Luke is just part two of that, and so Luke starts up again in chapter one, explaining what happens at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and after that. So Luke is very much a book of the church that Jesus Christ died for and created. These days, the church has fallen on hard times. People tend to, in numbers unprecedented, favor churches that are not affiliated with anything or perhaps not going to church at all, while possibly having a real and true and abiding faith in Jesus Christ, but just don't want to be associated with all this mess we do here on Sundays. You know, I certainly understand that. As I said earlier, when I was young, I went to all kinds of churches. Frankly, some of them I look back now and I could have chose better, but... As we grow through time and through life, we start to become familiar with the need for order and propriety. Frankly, when you're young, it's easy to fly by the seat of your pants and just hope things turn out, right? And as you get older, the steps involved going from point A to point B to point C become more apparent. It's several times I've had to have the conversation with young people, and they're saying things like, well, you know, it's, it's mostly older people that go to church. And I explained to them, when those older people were younger people, they weren't going to church either. What they did as they got older is they accumulated wisdom and the spiritual things and the nature of the next life became more and more important to them. In case you think I'm throwing something in here, it's directly in the text of the Bible that people should be more sanctified and understand God a little more and have a little bit deeper spirituality through life than they did at the beginning. Many times young people's faith is very invigorating and exciting, but it can also be skin deep, right? And it grows deeper and deeper and deeper as you walk with God. One of the things that we find is that God becomes very important when there's a wedding, when babies are born, and when people pass away. 
When people pass away, all of it gets very serious and real to us. There is nothing like your first available experience with death. That somebody that you knew and that you loved, that was a part of your family, that was right next to you and with you, and now the life has left them. The breath has left, the light has left their eyes. And if not for the solace that you find in the spiritual nature of God and his creation of human beings, there would be none. So these things get very important at the very opportune moment. But still, while almost none of you would put up with a completely disorganized bathroom, some of you really love a disorganized church, right? I know, you know, almost no churches, even in the ARP, would have read that little section of the Book of Church Order in the church service. It's important for you to know why we're doing this little thing that we do today. So it doesn't seem arbitrary or like something we made up, but something they've been doing for thousands of years, right? When people have served in the church, it's different than just serving Christ in general. Your devotion that you do at home is very important. Perhaps it's like the primary spiritual expression of your life. But the organized expression is not thrown out by Jesus. and certainly not thrown out by the Bible. Uh, we remember that one of the apostles, apostle candidates, they were really the disciples at the time, didn't make it to the last party, right? It even says Satan went into him and he betrayed Christ with a kiss and he died a horrible death and he sold out Jesus and salvation itself for 30 pieces of silver. So now there are only 11 and that's where we come to this point of the scene. Verse 15 of Acts chapter 1. In those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. There's a reason there were only 120 there. And said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. David was around 700 years before Judas, but he spoke concerning him. Who served as a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Now one of the things that these guys that have served a long time in ministry have seen is they've seen this kind of betrayal come and go again and again. It happens. Everybody that comes into the visible church is not truly part of the universal church. And everybody that's outside the visible church might be a member of the universal church. Those things are not identical, even though they're highly probable. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas brought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, his intestines spilled out. It's intentionally gross, I'm telling you, this is totally gross. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. For, said Peter, it was written in the book of the Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. May another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us from the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness of his resurrection. That's why there were only 120 Nobody else could be an apostle in the sense that Peter was an apostle. There's one that describes himself as a person abnormally born to apostleship. Who's that? The apostle Paul wasn't with him. He was busy killing Christians, which would give us great confidence in the fact that as sinful as we are, not quite as sinful as the apostle Paul. And he made it all the way to apostle, right? Uh, Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us from the whole time that the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism until the time of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Out of the 120, they got together and they nominated two 
Joseph called Barsabbas, also named as Justice, and Matthias. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over his apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was added to the eleven, and they had twelve apostles. One of the reasons they had to have twelve is because there was a church. At that time, the church was small, but it was going to get bigger, and there was an order built into it. And there were special men with special training and special background, but also a special calling of God that were going to serve in that church. Now, one of the biggest problems that I've had in ministry is guys I've known almost all my life, good 30 years, you know, some of them even longer than that. And one day they got up and they picked up a Bible and they made themselves a pastor and they started a church. And I still work with these guys to this day. But I tell you the truth when I tell you this. Their churches have been full of every kind of misery and breakdown and conflict and internal struggle and sin because they just made it up. They got no people elected from the people called by the Holy Spirit that have been nominated and that have been trained and that have been screened. If a guy has charisma and they can yell pretty loud, they can too can be a pastor. Sign up for my newsletter, I'll tell you how. But when you've been through a lot of those things in churches, paying attention to the form and order of the Bible starts to be very important. There's a way, there's a path, there are things that are supposed to be done and other things that are not to be done under any circumstances. So that's why we pay attention to the order that Jesus gave to the church and we don't just make it up for ourselves. Let's go to chapter 6. Again, so you don't think we're just throwing this stuff together. Chapter 6 of the verse of Acts. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the non-Jewish Greeks, arose against the Hebrews, that's the converted Christian Jews, Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In other words, just like we do to take care of the poor and have an organized system for that, they did too. And one group of people was saying the other group of people were being favored in that. But that's not really the point. That's just interesting. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to go serve on tables. He's not insulting people that serve on tables. He's saying we're distracted. We're distracted by all this other work so that we're not able to focus on the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. One thing I've told you many times is a church is for the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. All of the other things it does, the acts of grace and mercy and taking care of people, have to be by necessity secondary to that. If they become first, you're falling away from being a church and you're starting to be a social services agency. Even our great love for our fellow man does not take precedence over our love for God. The church is first for the preaching and teaching of the gospel, to save people for the next life. Everything else comes second to that. So he says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Pecorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They set them before the apostles, but the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them and ordained them. Now in that little thing that we read this morning, you notice that the order and structure is following exactly this order and structure of Scripture. From the people, there are nominations. Of those nominations, it's narrowed down and some are approved. Of those that are approved, they are ordained. And of those that are ordained, they are installed. There was a guy named John Knox. Anybody remember him? 
He's kind of seen as the father of the Presbyterian church just because he was there in time. He was not really there in theology. And one of the things that he did was he was in training to be a priest. Now, he was a Scottish Highlander. Now, you've never probably heard of a Scottish Lowlander, right? Because Lowlanders don't call themselves Lowlanders. They don't think of themselves as Lowlanders. But the Highlanders think of themselves as Highlanders, right? They were usually about a foot taller and there was nothing they liked better than broadswords and nothing they hated more than books. So, Knox was a Highlander and he was in order for the priesthood and a man came through town at the time of the Reformation named George Wishart. Now, George Wishart was also Highland bred. And he went through and he preached the gospel of free grace and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. And he went from town to town to town. And huge crowds would gather to hear this man preach. And one of them there was John Knox. And so when John Knox heard it, he was converted and convicted to the soul that everything he's been learning in priestcraft was basically a bunch of garbage. And that the people could actually approach the Lord Jesus Christ through faith without all the administrations and problems of going through the church. In other words, John Knox wasn't handing out salvation to people. He was just trying to help people find a salvation that they could use for themselves. In that, for two years, he became the bodyguard for George Wishart because he was that kind of guy. So when George Wishart would go preach, John Knox would actually stand in front of the pulpit with a broadsword looking people in the eye. It was Scotland. And then, they didn't have any trouble out of the crowd. Eventually, because of politics, the French really took over Scotland. It was made by agreement with England that the French would rule Scotland. And so the Queen of Scotland was in France and married the French prince. It became very complicated. You ran into the problem of the three Marys, of course. Mary of Guise of France, Mary of Scotland, and Queen Mary, who was the oldest daughter of Henry VIII, right? Henry VIII had some marriage trouble. Instead of going to counseling, (laughs) he started taking them out. So he went through six wives, but with one, Catherine of Aragon, who was French, he had Mary. Mary came to the throne. One of the first things she started doing is burning Protestants like they were going out of style. It turned the entire country against her. Catholic and Protestant were all against this kind of senseless, violent persecution of people on the basis of their faith. And John Knox was preaching against it. So she had him captured, and she had him imprisoned, and she had him sold as a French galley slave. And he rode for two years until one time he saw his opportunity to escape, and he jumped over the side of the ship off the coast of England and swam to France. There he walked through France in disguises and went to a place called Geneva, where there was religious toleration, even in the 1500s. And there he met the pastor that was over that city, a man named John Calvin, who we call John Calvin. And he studied with John Calvin for two years. And if you go there today, John Calvin's church holds three, 4,000 people. It's a brilliant, beautiful church. And right next to it is a stone building made from ancient stones that have been on that site as a church for a 1,000 years. And they call that the John Knox Chapel, or the English-speaking communion where he preached for years and then went back to Scotland and founded what we call the Presbyterian Church. Well, what made it Presbyterian? Why wasn't it just a church? They had all the same doctrines, dogmas, same Bible. One of the things is that the Presbyterians said, no minister or priest can come into or be appointed to a church without the consent of the people 
that they serve. Now, one aspect of that is we're not going to have any French-speaking priests showing up around here. It was kind of an ethnic thing at the time. No Germans, it's got to be a Scot. But also that the people themselves were full of the Holy Spirit and they had a say and a hand in the ministry itself. In other words, they were not the bedraggled, dirty, discarded, worldly people while the priests up here were the spiritual ones. I found that to be the opposite many times in ministry, right? They were also of the priesthood of all believers and filled with the Holy Spirit, and so they chose their leadership. Here's the other shift. Instead of the priests and the bishops and all of those being shipped in to rule the people, every elder was chosen from the membership of the congregation itself the way they did it right here. The key phrase, choose from among yourselves men full of the Holy Spirit, and we will ordain them over you. Another thing you see through there is the Apostle Paul goes all through the world, right? What's the main thing he's doing as he's traveling? Starting churches, right? And in the phrases again and again, and he ordained pastors there, and he ordained elders there, and he did this, and he did that. It's not something to lightly pass by. It's very important to the well-being of the church. Churches don't just make themselves. Christ makes them. And if people don't want to be in submission to Christ, sooner or later... It's going to be a problem. So when we do these things, I want you to understand that it's not religion, and it's not tradition, and it's not something we're making up, and nobody wants power over you, and nobody cares a bit about having authority. It's about Christ and Scripture. This is the way he said this is to be done, and not in another way. And if you do it another way, trouble will come. Because they had to be full of the Holy Spirit, let's move on to one more set of verses. Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. In regard to who's going to do this, you might see these as being things that would apply to any Christian. And that's true. Not every Christian is called, but every Christian within reason is probably qualified. Right? Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. Now when he says something like that, he's not trying to convince you that it's trustworthy. He's commanding you and telling you, this is what you trust. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer in the church must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunk or violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome or a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. We, we have to hedge on that one a little bit sometimes. But. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. So you, you might see, well, you know, all of you kind of qualify for this. Within reason, right? It's not a super high bar, but it means that you maintain your Christianity well, that you comport yourself as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, that you live the life of Christ not just in this room, but when you go out there, that you live it with your family and you live it in the community, and people kind of recognize that. 
One good sign that you're living like a good Christian is that there's a good number of folks that think you're kind of a weirdo. If you can, if you can see what I'm saying. They can kind of tell there's something different. So here are the standards. Now we have men that serve in this for life. Frankly, you don't know any elders that don't have bumps and bruises and scratches and scars. It is not the easiest thing in the world. That's why God talks about it in His Word the way He does. He even tells them, don't serve unwillingly, but with joy. He has to tell them that because some guys it's like, oh, I don't want to have to do it. They would rather do just about anything else. Notice that they have to manage their household well, but it doesn't mean that they're great, brilliant business geniuses. You might know that before when I was in the Presbyterian Church in America, one of the things they had me do was go around to troubled churches and see if we could turn that around. One of the things that commonly happened is the men that were on the session, the men that were on the elders board, were men that were much more likely to be deacons, and the spiritual men couldn't get elected to leadership positions. Because it's not saying you're Bill Gates. It's not saying you're successful in the ways of the world or that you're a great accountant or that you're a great leader in the military or a general. In all of these things, it's talking about the spiritual matters of the soul and the well-being and keeping of the congregation. You guys know what pastor means, right? Just the other day, I had a conversation with somebody. They, you know, There's some folks that we hang around with that only call me Brother Chris. You know what it means as soon as you hear Brother Chris, right? That means they're, they're an Anabaptist, right? Because they don't say pastor. Because there's this thing that came up a while ago in the Anabaptist theology, you can't call any man father, right? And because they don't go to seminary, they didn't know pastor doesn't mean father. It means shepherd. It means caregiver of the flock and the sheep. Jesus is the great shepherd of our faith, right? Jesus is the pastor's pastor. And so a pastor, as an overseer, is a shepherd of the flock. He's not a father. He's not a ruler. He's not a king. So we had a conversation about that. At first they didn't believe me. They had to go look it up. I'm like, go look it up. It doesn't mean father. You don't have to call me father, Chris. That would just be weird, right? Uh, But they did look it up and they came back a little disturbed because apparently their whole church thought it meant father. So we're over here making people call us father. Even though scripture said, call no man father. uh, So anyway, to, to move on. Uh, We have a couple of men that have served faithfully in this church and other churches for longer than most of y'all have even been alive. For longer than most of you have even been alive. They've been serving Christ in this capacity day in and day out with all the troubles and the comings and goings and the mere administrations and the handling of money and the crying widows and the divorced parents and the children that leave the church and don't come back, and the people that get involved in drugs and alcohol, and the people that fall into this sin, and the people that fall into that sin, and they've been shepherding these people for decades. It's an incredible testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit and of Christ that they have done this well and in good order for all this time. Let's bring those gentlemen up now. Jack Anthony, if you would come. Sit here. And Jerry Lyons, if you'd come also. Check, check, check. 
if you guys think this isn't allowed, we don't actually have a rule about this. You read the Book of Church Order. Jack, maybe you could tell uh, a little to the folks about your story and uh, your, your time at Graceview. Okay. Well, I came to Graceview. Uh, it wasn't Graceview then. They called it New Life Fellowship. Uh, in, uh, that's 47 years ago. Uh, I've been serving in a position of leadership all that time, whether it would be the ad- administ- we had an administrative committee before we w- were uh, a- an organized church. I served in that. Uh, previously to that, I served uh, seven years as an elder at a Cumberland Presbyterian church. So altogether, I've, I've been in a position of leadership for 55 years. Uh, Probably the first seven years of that, I was too young. But I was drawn to this church. Uh, of course, I was out for for a little while. Uh, when you have kids, uh, you know, other things get in your way, which they shouldn't. But I soon realized the the error of my way, and I I became asso- associated with this church. Just because it was a Presbyterian church, I didn't know anything about Reformed. Uh, back then, Presbyterian meant Presbyterian, as in my way of thinking. Uh, but I'm so glad and thankful uh, that God has, uh, has shown me grace. Uh, all of that, uh, more than I deserve, uh, His abundant grace, and uh, I'm just uh, uh, thankful that I can uh, can be here and continue to serve. You know, the word emeritus does not mean retirement. It means to serve out. So as long as the Lord gives me the strength to do that, that's what I uh, intend to do. Now, Jack, could you tell the folks a little about your personal conversion and your, and your spiritual walk? Uh, well, my personal conversion was I was baptized uh, when I was about eight or nine years old in a uh, PC uh, USA church. Well, they... Uh, it, it wasn't even a PCUSA. It was the old Presbyterian uh, PCUS, I think, was what they called it then. It was Southern Presbyterian. But uh, I've never really known a time uh, when I didn't walk with the Lord. Uh, I, I did not have a, uh, uh, a sudden conversion. Uh, but thanks to the teaching of some, uh, some faithful Sunday school teachers... Uh, I became uh, associ- uh, knowledgeable of Scripture, uh, memorizing Psalms uh, at a very early age, and uh, my father was a was an elder in that uh, PC uh, US church. Uh, and then, uh, throughout time, I, I moved from where I was born uh, to a, a, a community that did not have a PC US church. And, but they did have a Cumberland Presbyterian Church, so uh, I, I joined that. Okay. Uh, Jerry, maybe you could tell us about uh, your, your whole spiritual walk, but also how you came to Gracie. Well, first of all, I, I, I have, like Chris, been exposed to uh, many different churches. My first experience uh, was going to church with my mother and father. Uh, and uh, it was a Presbyterian church, an old-time country Presbyterian church, which is still there now. Uh, my father and mother are buried in the, the uh, uh, graveyard there at the church. 
but then uh, my mother became sick and uh, wound up in a sanatorium in Charlottesville, Virginia, with the tuberculosis, and our family became dysfunctional. Uh, my three, my two brothers, and I were separated and uh, divided, put it into different homes, and uh, so therefore that's how I became exposed to many churches. The, whoever my guardian was, that was the one uh, whose church I went to. So I went to the Pentecostal churches, and I went to the Baptist churches, and and I went to uh, the uh, uh, Brethren churches, Methodist, and so I was quite exposed to the different uh, denominations. And uh, but anyway, uh, uh, my mother died when I was ten years old, and at that time I uh, finally wound up with my father. He and I were bachelors for a while, and then then he married my uh, stepmother who was uh, six years older than me, so she was more of a sister than a mother. But anyway, uh, to make this short, when I was um, uh, in 1955, I was 17 years old, and I was uh, dating this young lady, and uh, this young lady's mother refused to allow me to see her unless I went to church with her. And they happened to be Baptist. And so uh, one Wednesday night, way back in 1955, I heard a Wednesday night sermon, and the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. And obviously the Baptists have an altar call. I didn't answer the altar call, but the Holy Spirit did not let loose. And so when I got home, when I got home before bed, I fell to my bedside and asked the Lord Jesus to come into my heart. And praise God he did. And so since then, I have claimed to be a Christian, even though I must confess before you that there were periods in my life that, that I'm not proud of, and that I certainly have sinned so much, and except for the matchless grace of God, I, I would not have a chance of the blessed hope of heaven. But due to a friend inviting me at work in North Carolina to go to church with him, it was a Methodist church, Ted Jeanette and I went. And uh, we both uh, rededicated our, our hearts to the Lord, and we began to serve the Lord in the Methodist Church. Uh, not knowing anything really about the Methodist Church, we both have come to realize as we were going there that uh, their doctrine didn't support what we believed. And so finally we decided that we would have to leave the church, due to, and I won't go into the details, but anyway... Jeanette and I started looking for another church, and we visited churches. We went to the Baptist church, and we, and then uh, finally, a friend of mine at, at a Gideon's meeting, uh, uh, he suggested that, he says, I think maybe you would might like to hear my pastor. And his pastor happened to be the past pastor of the uh, first uh, ARP church in Gastonia, North Carolina. Jeanette and I discussed that, and she resisted a little bit because uh, it was a large church, and uh, we were both accustomed to small churches, which we preferred. And, uh, but anyway, finally, uh, one Saturday, I says, where are we going to church tomorrow? And she says, well, if you really want to, we'll go to First Church. And so we did. And uh, to make the, short, uh, the story very short, we were so, so impressed, we realized right away that that was where the Lord wanted us to be. And so after just a year there, I, I might re 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 just remind you, I was a, a, a leader in the Methodist Church. I would claim that they do not have elders or, or, be, or deacons, but they have what they refer to as a lay leader. 
And so I served a lay leader in, in that church for about four years. And that's when I really, really, going to the, their, their, their conventions, I realized this is really not where I belong. So at any rate, going back to my church, uh, within a year's time, the, uh, uh, the church leadership asked me if I would be willing to serve as a deacon there. And so uh, I served there as a deacon for th- three years, took a, a year sabbatical, and then they called, me, called again and asked me to serve another year, another term. And that's when Jeanette and I uh, were led to uh, here in Gastonia. And obviously being a, uh, an ARP there, the, f- the first thing we looked for was an ARP church. And that's how we came here. And obviously when we walked through the door, the reception we had here was no... No doubt in our mind that this was our church. And so, fortunately, uh, uh, I served here uh, a year, and then I was asked, because of uh, more than likely to do my previous leadership as a deacon, uh, they asked me to serve as a deacon. And God blessed me uh, with that honor. And then a year later, uh, they called upon me to serve as an elder. The, the highest honor for a layperson in the church as far as I'm concerned. And so since that time, I have served as, uh, as an elder in this church a total of six years. And so that's where I am now. And I just praise God for the, for the privilege of being a part of this wonderful, wonderful fellowship. Thank you. Gentlemen, could you rise as we renew your vows? As we read this morning, you're ordained for life. Uh, You can just stand right there in front of those chairs. Do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And do you confess anew the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and acknowledge him head over all things for the church, which is his body? Do you reaffirm your belief in the Bible and the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as the word of the living God, the only perfect rule of faith and practice, infallible in all that it teaches and inerrant in the original manuscripts and to which nothing is to be added and from which nothing is to be taken at any time or upon any pretext? I do. Do you accept the doctrines of this church contained in the Westminster Confession of Faith and catechisms as founded on the word of God and as the expression of your own faith, and do you resolve obedience thereunto? Do you accept the government, discipline, and worship of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church? Do you accept the office of Elder Emeritus in this congregation, and do you promise to perform faithfully all the duties of the office, and do you promise to endeavor by the grace of God to live your life in Christian witness before the church and the world? Do you promise to submit in the spirit of love to the authority of the session and to the higher courts of the church you serve? I do. Do you promise in all things to promote the unity, peace, purity, and prosperity of the church? I do. There is also a vow to the congregation. Now, this is specifically for the members of the church because in many ways you're swearing an old-fashioned oath of fidelity and submission. I know that people hate those these days. It sounds old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy. But, uh, you know, there was a time when if Jesus or the Apostle Paul walked into the room, you would have threw yourself on your face at his feet. 
Do you, the members of this congregation, acknowledge and receive these fellow members as elders? And do you promise to give them all the honor, encouragement, obedience, and assistance in the spirit of love to which their office, according to the word of God, entitles them? Elders, could you come up, please? is I'd like to just say one little thing I've known this man for over 30 years and I have served with him in dark times good times and he's one of the Christian mentors of my life and he's very dear to me and somebody told me at Presbytery years ago that church has always had strong leadership and they were talking about this man Love you, brother. And this guy I've served with in some dark times, too. And he's a man of honor. And he's another Christian mentor in my life. And he's a really good man. And his wife told me I could say something. <laughs> Will you pray for these gentlemen, please? Dear God, most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for today, and thank you so much for Jack and for Jerry and, and for their ministry and for their example and for their leadership and for their humility, for everything that you've imbued in them. Thank you for bringing them into our lives, and please keep them here for a long, long time. Please bless them as they bless us, and thank you so much for everything that you do for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So in this, back to sermonizing, a lot of this that happened is just part of a history, a story, which descends to us an unbroken line of succession from 500 years ago in England and Scotland, because that's just where it happened to happen, all the way down to today, following this same course of letting Scripture itself dictate our form and order. I understand that you can't learn it all in one day in one sermon, but you probably have questions about it. Ask any of these men. If you're looking for a mentor in the Holy Spirit, somebody you can call and somebody you can talk to about spiritual and scriptural things, you can do a lot worse than Jerry or Jack Anthony, frankly. There's this thing about the miles under the wheels having a lot to do with how great the car runs. And there is nothing like experience and background to sharpen ability. There just is. Having been there and having done that. So at this time, we're going to uh, close in prayer, and then we'll sing the next song. Do, do we know the number of that one? Did you say? Number 273. Then I'll give the benediction, and we will have a special meal in honor of Jack and Jerry.
Is there anything else? Lord God, our Father, we thank You for these two men. We thank You for these elders. We thank You for these deacons. We thank You for these church. That every person here, Lord God, is special and called by You. That Your Spirit rests upon them and works mightily within them for their sanctification and the well-being of each other and the world. And we thank You for all of these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise as we sing.